Take your copy of God's Word and open it with me once again to the Gospel of John, chapter 10. Picking up where we left off, we're going to read the rest of the chapter starting in verse 31, John 10, verses 31 through 42. While you're turning there, isn't it amazing how a single word can change the course of a person's life? Have you noticed that? A man is on trial. The jury comes back with a verdict, guilty or not guilty. A difference of just one word, but that one word changes everything. A man gets down on his knee to ask a girl to marry him. If she says yes, if she says no, one word. But that one word changes everything. Maybe your doctor asked you to come to his or her office for the results of that major medical test. Negative, positive, just one word. But that one word changes everything. This is especially true when the person speaking that one word is Jesus. We see this repeatedly in the Gospels. Jesus spoke just one word to that man who was deaf and mute. He said, Ephatha, be opened. And suddenly, that man was healed. He said one word to the Gadarene demoniac. He said, go. And suddenly, the demons had to flee. Jesus said one word to Peter, come. And he got out of the boat, and he walked on the water. As Jesus hung upon the cross, he said what was, in the original language, one word. He said, tetelestai, or it is finished. And with that one word, the price of our redemption was complete. Yes, one word can make a world of difference. In our passage this morning, we're going to notice that once again, there is a debate between Jesus and his enemies. Now, this is something we've seen numerous times, haven't we, in the Gospel of John. These religious authorities are arguing with Jesus. They are mad at him because of something that he said in the passage before, which we studied last Sunday. In fact, Jesus spoke a single word and they considered this word to be so controversial and so offensive that when Jesus said this single word they immediately began looking for stones thinking they were going to stone him to death now you're probably wondering wow what word could this be what word might Jesus have used that would trigger this kind of response? Well, the word that Jesus spoke that so infuriated them was the word one. That's it. He said in verse 30, the Father and I are one. Remember, Jesus was explaining why it is there is no person or power that is able to snatch the believer from God's hand. 
And he argues that for someone to break the believer's union with God, they would first have to somehow break that union between God the Father and God the Son. And Jesus said, that's not possible because the Father and I are one. And when Jesus spoke that word, it was like lighting a match which suddenly turned into this great big flame. And for most of the rest of this chapter, they are furious and they are fighting with Jesus over a single word. Now, when Jesus said, the Father and I are one, please understand, that doesn't mean one person. God the Father is a separate person from God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. Neither is Jesus saying here, well, the Father and I have one mission. We have one purpose. No, the word one here means one in essence. Once again, as Jesus has done many times before in the Gospel of John, Jesus is claiming to be divine. He's claiming to be the Son of God. Now, either his claim is true or his claim is false. And there is no middle ground. There is no in-between. And so the question then becomes, why should we believe him? Why should we believe that Jesus' claim to be one with the Father is true? Why is this important? Why does this matter to our lives today? Well, there are a couple of reasons that we're going to see in our text. First of all, I want you to notice his works are consistent with his claim. His works, the works that Jesus performed, are consistent with his claim. Look at verse 31. Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. You know, it's been several months since the last time they tried to play this trick. When in John chapter 8, Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. And they went looking for stones to stone him. Several months have passed, but their hatred for him has not abated one bit. Now, they're doing this. They're looking for stones. They think they're going to stone him because in certain Old Testament passages, like Leviticus 24 and Numbers 15, this is what you did when someone committed the crime of blasphemy. You know, many people try to deny that Jesus claimed to be God, but there is no doubt whatsoever that that is exactly how Jesus' enemies understood his statement. And we're going to see as we read further, Jesus does not correct them because on this one point, they didn't need to be corrected. Jesus spoke clearly. They understood him clearly. And I love Jesus' response in verse 32. Jesus answered them, Many good works I have shown you from my Father. For which of those works do you stone me? What a great question. You are going to stone me? Really? Okay, fine. For which of my good works are you going to stone me to death? You're going to stone me to death because I healed people? You're going to stone me to death because I fed the hungry? Are you going to stone me to death because I raised the dead? For which of my good works will you stone me? Now, can I just pause right here and mention something about verse 32? And I just want you to know, 
Verse 32 has had a major impact on me personally. And this verse has had a major impact on my philosophy of ministry and how I try to lead this church as your pastor. I believe that it is vitally important that the church in the 21st century be able to ask the world this same question that Jesus asked them in verse 32. For which of our good works do you hate us? For which of our good works would you judge us? Because there are a lot of people these days in this culture, in this society, they won't give us the time of day much less give us the time to share the gospel with them based on some of the positions we hold and the stands that we take on the Word of God. For example, when we say that the Bible teaches that marriage is between a man and a woman, when we say that the Bible teaches that life begins at conception, when we say that there is such a thing as absolute truth or that Jesus is the only way to heaven, when we say these things, there is this immediate opposition and it is vitally important that those who oppose us would be forced to look at us and say, well, I may not agree with some of their positions, but you know what? Those are the people who feed the hungry. I got to hand them that. Those are the ones who minister to the homeless. Those are the ones who are in the prisons. Those are the ones who are loving their neighbors. This is why we do so many of the things we do at First Baptist Church of Homestead. This is why we have a ministry called Kids Hope, and we feed disadvantaged teenagers every weekend. This is why on Thursday we're going to go to the homeless shelter and serve lunch. This is why this morning members of our church were at Dade Correctional teaching the Word of God to about 50 inmates. This is why we do benevolence. This is why we do all of these things. And listen, we don't do these things in place of preaching the gospel. We do these things while we preach the gospel. And the world had better be able to look at us and see this. We had better be able to ask them, for which of these good works do you stone us? Now, when Jesus asked this question, he's making a point. He's saying, the works that I do back up my claim to be the Son of God. Now, what good works had Jesus done that would back up such a major claim? Well, you remember that story in Matthew 11 when John the Baptist was in prison and things weren't turning out exactly as he thought they were supposed to, and he got discouraged. He experienced a moment of doubt. Even John the Baptist experienced a moment of doubt. And so he sent messengers to Jesus to ask him, are you really the one? Are you really the Christ? And do you remember how Jesus responded? He said, go back and tell them what you see, what you hear. Tell, them, tell him that the blind receive sight, and the lame walk, and the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised, and the gospel is preached to the poor. These are the good works that Jesus was referring to. And so how did they reply? Look at verse 33. The Jews answered him, saying, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. And because you, being a man, notice this, make yourself God. 
This is how they interpreted Jesus' statement, the Father and I are one. They said, you are a man making yourself God. Now, technically, Jesus was not a man making himself God. He was God who made himself man. But the fact that Jesus was God-made man, that's an incredible claim. Now, if somebody makes that kind of a claim, they've got to have something to back that up, right? Now, in verse 34, Jesus is going to back it up using Scripture, but then he returns to this original point about his works and how his works demonstrate that he really is who he claimed to be. So skip down for a moment to verse 37. If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. Boy, those are four words you never thought you'd hear from Jesus, right? Do not believe me. But notice the context. If I do not do the works of my Father. What does he mean, the works of my Father? In other words... If you don't see me doing the works you would expect my father to be doing. If I don't do the works you would expect God to do if God were walking on the face of the earth. Now, what an excellent point. If God were literally walking on the face of the earth on October 22nd, 2023, what works would we expect him to do? Would he not speak exactly as Jesus spoke? Would he not heal exactly as Jesus healed? Would he not love others exactly the way Jesus loved others? His wisdom, would it not be the exact wisdom that we see in Jesus? Would his power not be the exact power we see in Christ? Here's the point. Jesus did everything we would expect God to do. And in that sense, he did the works of his Father. He said, if I'm not doing the works of my Father, he said, don't believe me. But if I am. Here's how you should respond. Look at verse 38. But if I do, though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. Can you hear the sound of Jesus' voice? Can you hear Jesus pleading with them to be saved? It's as if he's saying, even if you're not inclined to believe in me, look at my works. Believe my works so you'll know that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Now, right there, Jesus made a claim about himself that no one else could make in all of human history. Only the Son of God could say that, that he has a special relationship with God the Father, and the works Jesus performed are consistent with that claim. And of course, we know the greatest work of all in John chapter 10, he hadn't even done yet, when he died on the cross for our sin, and when he rose again on the third day. 
That work and all of his works are consistent with his claim that he is one with the Father. He is the Son of God. We see that his works are consistent with his claim. And then we also see another point that Jesus makes in this passage, and that is that the Scriptures support his claim. The Scriptures support his claim. Now go back to verse 34. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law? I said, You are gods. If he called them gods, to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father sanctified, meaning set apart, and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, and here is Jesus reiterating what he said in verse 30, because I said, I am the Son of God. Now, Jesus' opponents accused him of blasphemy because he claimed to be God, and so he responds with Scripture. He quotes to them a verse from Psalm 82. Now, in just a moment, we're going to go there. In just a moment, we'll read that psalm because when you understand the psalm, you'll understand why Jesus was citing it and what he meant by it. But before I do that, can I just point out to you how Jesus viewed the Scriptures? Do you notice how Jesus viewed the Scriptures at that time, the Old Testament? Did you notice in verse 35 the words that he used to describe the Scriptures? He called it the Word of God. The Word of God. Even though God used human authors, God inspired them and he spoke through them in such a way that the words that they wrote could be called the very Word of God. Also in verse 35, do you notice what Jesus said about the Scriptures? He said, the Scripture cannot be broken. In other words, whenever the Word of God speaks, it speaks correctly, it speaks accurately, it speaks perfectly. The Word of God is never an error in any subject in which the Word of God speaks. It gets it right every single time. Now, it is amazing to us that Jesus as the Son of God, even He would appeal to the Word of God as His authority. But Jesus believed clearly that if the Scripture said something, that settles it. Some of you all remember the old bumper sticker. You don't see it much anymore these days, but you used to. You remember that old bumper sticker that you would see that said, God said it. I believe it. That settles it. Oh, no, my friend. If God said it, that settles it, whether you believe it or not. Jesus said the scripture 
cannot be broken. When God says it, that settles it. And how Jesus understood the Scripture is how we should understand the Scripture. Jesus called it the Word of God, therefore we should call it the Word of God. No other book has ever been so authenticated by history and archaeology and manuscripts. No other book has been so confirmed miraculously by fulfilled prophecies. No other book contains such wisdom. No other book has had such an impact for all of these reasons and so much more. We should agree with what Jesus said about the Scriptures that it is the word of God, that it cannot be broken. Now, this is so important to note this because, unfortunately, we are living in a time in which a lot of people, and I mean a lot of people, including many sitting in the pews of churches on Sundays, they want to try and build a wall in between following Jesus and following God the Bible. As if you can do one without the other. They want to build a wall between believing Jesus and believing the Bible. And sometimes you'll hear someone say, oh yes, I believe Jesus. Now, some of that stuff the Bible says, I'm not so sure about. But I believe Jesus. Ladies and gentlemen, we don't have the option of following Jesus, but not the Bible. We don't have the option of believing Jesus, but not the Bible. Because if you don't believe all of the Bible to be true, I just ask you, what Jesus are you following? What Jesus are you following? Because the Jesus that we follow, he said that this is the Word of God and that it cannot be broken. So Jesus appeals to the Scripture, and he's going to make a whole point, an entire argument, based on, once again, one word from Psalm 82. Now, we are going to read this psalm. We're going to read this psalm because many times when there are people who try to deny what Jesus said, people who try to deny that Jesus is the Son of God, you know where they go? They go to Psalm 82. And they go to John chapter 10, in which Jesus quotes Psalm 82. I guarantee you, somebody comes to your door to give you an awake magazine. Someone knocks on your door after riding on their bicycle with a little badge that says, Elder, this is where they're going to go, and this is the scripture they're going to quote. So we're going to read it. It's just eight verses. We're going to read Psalm 82, because when we read it in its whole context, it suddenly becomes a lot more clear. Isn't it amazing how looking at the context has a way of doing that? Psalm 82, verse 1, the words will be on the screen. God presides in the great assembly. He renders judgment among the gods. How long will you defend the unjust and show partiality to the wicked? Defend the weak and the fearless. Uphold the cause of the poor, the oppressed. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. The gods know nothing. They understand nothing. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. And here, verse 6, is the verse that Jesus quotes in John chapter 10. 
I said, you are gods. You are all sons of the Most High. But you will die like mere mortals. You will fall like every other ruler. Rise up, O God. Judge the earth, for all the nations are your inheritance. Now, if you've never studied that passage before, you might read that and wonder what in the world is going on here. If you're not familiar with Psalm 82... Psalm 82 is a warning to corrupt politicians. It is a warning in particular to corrupt judges. In Israel, there were judges, just like we have judges, who adjudicated conflicts and they issued rulings. Our judges supposedly rule according to the Constitution of the United States, the laws of the United States, and the state of Florida. But these judges, they would issue their rulings based on the law of God. And because these judges in Israel supposedly spoke for God, they had a title. You might say they had a nickname. You know what they were called? They were called Elohim. Does that sound familiar? Elohim. That is one of the primary names for God that we see in the Old Testament. In fact, did you know Elohim? That's the name of God that appears in the very first verse of the Bible. In the beginning, Elohim created the heavens and the earth. Two 1,605 times God is referred to as Elohim, but on a handful of occasions, that name is used to refer to these judges. No, they were not divine. They were not literally gods. That was understood. They were called Elohim because they represented God to the people. Because if they were doing what they were supposed to be doing, it was as if when they spoke, God spoke. It was as if their rulings were God's rulings. Their judgments were God's judgments because they were basing them on the word of God. But when you read all of Psalm 82 like we just did, it becomes very clear those judges were not doing what they were supposed to be doing, were they? It says in verse 2, they were defending the guilty. It says here that they were showing partiality to the wicked. They were not caring for the oppressed. So notice what God does. God warns them, and God says to the judges... Look out, because I'm going to judge you. Boy, that's a frightful thought, isn't it? If you're a judge. And notice what Jesus does here. He quotes this psalm in which these judges were called Elohim. And this is what you call an argument from the lesser to the greater. If it was not blasphemy for those corrupt judges to be called Elohim, then how can it be blasphemy 
that Jesus said in John 10, 36, I am the Son of God. So notice, Jesus is not denying what he said. He's not denying that he claimed to be divine. He's what, you're, what you call digging in. We call this doubling down. He's saying, oh yes, you heard me correctly. Yes, I claim to be God. But why would you stone me? Because if those judges were called Elohim because they were supposed to speak on behalf of God, how much more fitting is it for the actual Son of God to do so? That's his argument. And so we see that his works that he performed, they were consistent with his claim to be the Son of God. And he shows them that, yes, even the Scriptures support his claim to be the Son of God. But if this is true, if Jesus is the Son of God, if Jesus and the Father are one, that means there can be one response, one appropriate response. Look at verse 39. Therefore they sought again to seize him, but he escaped out of their hand. And he went away again beyond the Jordan to the place where John was baptizing at first, and there he stayed. Then many came to him and said, John performed no sign, but all the things that John spoke about this man were true. By the way, you know what really encourages me about verse 41? The fact that John has been dead for a while now, and yet God is still using his preaching ministry to reach people, even after he's in heaven. Verse 42, and many believed in him there. Now, once again, uh, some of them tried to seize Jesus to kill him. Once again, they could not. It would be about four months later that his hour would come and Jesus would willingly, voluntarily lay down his life and yield himself to the Father's will when he died on the cross for us. But I want you to notice what Jesus did first. This passage, these verses we just read, if you don't know, this marks the end of Jesus' public ministry. This marks the end of his public ministry. So what does he do? He goes back to the very place where it started. He went back across the Jordan. He went back to that very place where over three years earlier he had been baptized. He stood in that very place where John the Baptist had preached. He preached to the very people to whom John the Baptist had ministered. And what a difference. Talk about a night and day difference. Two groups of people. And supposedly they all heard the same sermons. I imagine they all saw basically the same miracles. And yet in Jerusalem, they wanted to kill him. But here... Verse 42, many believed in him there. How did they respond? They just believed. They placed their faith in Jesus. Folks, if Jesus really is the Son of God, if he's one with the Father, if he is who he claimed to be, 
the Word made flesh, if He came from heaven to earth to save us, this is the only appropriate response. And do you realize what we're reading here? This is really what separates the Bible from every other religious book. This is what separates Christianity from every other religion. This is what separates Jesus from every other prophet. The fact that we are broken sinners, that we are unable to save ourselves, that we cannot pay the price for the debt of sin we owe, and therefore, since we could not reach up to God, God had to come down to us. Jesus, who was one with the Father, Jesus, the Son of God, He came down to us in human flesh, and He lived a perfect, sinless life in our place. He died on the cross in our place. He rose from the grave in our place. He did all of that for us. You know, I've said many times when a person is drowning, they don't need a person to come along and tell them how to swim. When a person is drowning, they don't need a critic to tell them, thou shalt not swim alone. When a person is drowning, they don't need a cheerleader to come along and exhort them to swim harder. And when a person is drowning, they certainly don't need a critic to condemn them for swimming in deep waters. When a person is drowning, what they need is a lifeguard who will get into that water where they are and pull them out. I tell you that because without Jesus, we'd all be drowning in an ocean of sin. You know what we need? We need the one who was one with the Father. We need the Son of God to come down to us. I tell you what we don't need. We don't need tips on how to live a better life. We don't need a list of rules telling us what to do and what not to do. We don't need a cheerleader to come and give us a pep talk. We need a Savior. We needed Jesus, who was one with the Father, to come down into our world of sin, to meet us where we are, so that He could pull us out and save us. That's what Jesus did for us. And that's what only Jesus could do for us because Jesus was one with the Father, the Son of God. I said at the beginning of this message, one word can change everything. And that can be true of your life this morning if that one word is yes. Yes, Lord. Yes, Jesus, yes, I will trust you, I receive you, and I will follow you. Oh, I pray that's your response this morning. Would you join me as we pray once again? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you sent your only begotten Son, the Son of God, who came from heaven to earth 
and who lived the life we should have lived and who died the death we deserve to die. And he won the victory we could not win when he rose from the grave on the third day and he did all of that on our behalf. He did all of that in our place. He did all of that for us. And God, how I pray that the response of every man, woman, boy, and girl in this place to all of that would be yes. Yes, Jesus, I believe. Yes, Lord, I will follow you. And if there's any here today who need to receive that gift, how I plead with you, just as Jesus pleaded with them in John chapter 10, Lord, we plead with you today that this really would be their day of salvation, the day that they call upon the name of the Lord and they are saved. Father, I pray for all of us here that you would help us to take what we've read and what we've learned. Uh, some of this, Lord, is, is deep waters. Uh, Father, help us to really understand what we've read and then apply it to our lives that the world would be able to see those good works done in us, that we, too, would be able to say to the world, for which of our good works? For which of our good works? Would you hate us? Would you judge us? Help us, Lord, to be busy doing the works of Christ, the very works that you would have us to do, that you would do in us and through us, so that we can, while doing so, preach the good news of the gospel to everyone around us, so that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Have your way, O oh God. We pray in Jesus' name.